Hey, 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 Elon. Hey, Casey. Welcome to our second live show of Sinister, Strange, and Suspicious. Live at Frankenfest. It's really great to see you guys. Thank you for coming. So, for those of you who don't know, Sinister, Strange, and Suspicious is a tiny little podcast that we dreamt up at a backyard barbecue at my house about two and a half years ago now. Yeah, just about. <laughs> um, we are just two crazy mom friends who, like everybody else, enjoy discussing true crime, oddities, <laughs> conspiracy theories, and whatever else we want. Um, just a little bit of a warning, we can be offensive and sweary. So maybe not for little, little kids? <laughs> You've been warned. What? What's new, Elon? Not much. I am amped, though. Like, I am... This is our second show. We said the first one was our first First pancake. pancake. Yeah. yeah you have we... to try out, figure out what works, what doesn't. Um, so that was, that was the Lansing Frankenfest. And um, luckily, we were asked to come back for this one, for number yeah. two. And we're super stoked. And so part of the deal to be able to come here and tell you weird things was that we promised that we would help raise some funds for historic Fort Wayne. So if you guys feel so compelled, we would love it if you would put literally anything in the donation box out there. Every little cent adds up. So, I mean, I understand I'm poor. I can't afford a lot. Literally even a penny helps. So if you could do that, we would love you forever. <laughs> do you want to hear some dad jokes? I do. <laughs> so, Frankenstein entered a bodybuilding competition. Soon, he found out he had seriously misunderstood the objective. Oh, God. Casey. <laughs> what does Frankenstein call a screwdriver? What? Daddy. Oh, for heaven's sake. <laughs> Girl. You, you gave me full control. I did. I did not. I did not. I normally pre-screen her jokes <laughs> for episodes, and I did not. She did not rein me in at all. You're welcome. Oh. So, Dr. Frankenstein finally became popular enough in his own right to gain unlimited access to the cemeteries and morgues for his creations. To the victor goes the spoils. Oh, God. <laughs> Oh, that's probably the worst one yet. You're welcome. Good job. I like, I'm, I'm actually impressed. I'm proud. Why didn't Frankenstein ever make a second monster? He just didn't have the gusto to do it again. Oh, God. I'm in physical pain. I love you. I love you, too. There's two more. No, ma'am. Because, well, it's now, <laughs> now with more dad jokes, oh, right? Okay. This is more. Your, this is your twenty percent more, like twenty percent more cereal boxes. You are getting your value today. Mm. What did Dr. Frankenstein say when his monster spat on him? What? It's saliva. <laughs> Do you think we should get into it now? Please. I am too fucking excited. <laughs> I'm, gonna, I'm gonna go first. All right, go for it. All right, so when Jerry had the bright idea to bring us here to offend the masses, we became super excited um, because the theme of Frankenfest is pretty freaking cool. 
So um, I decided immediately that I wanted to cover the history and influence of Frankenstein over the past 200 years. And I thought it was super appropriate because Mary Shelley just had her birthday, you know, it's coming up on spooky season, and a lot of stuff people don't really know. So the Frankenstein phenomenon was born in 1816. Mary Shelley, her lover, and her stepsister had been traveling for about a year through Europe and decided to stop and stay for a while at the estate of Lord Byron. During their time with Lord Byron, it was rainy as hell and the group quickly grew bored with being trapped inside the, with the miserable weather. So Lord Byron thought up this brilliant idea. He was like, let's have a scary story contest. As yes, you do. Mary Shelley was like, fuck yeah. And she showed up to show out and she ended up writing a short story that would become the novel that we all know and love today. Honestly, I feel like if I had been alive during this time, Mary Shelley and I would have been homegirls. Big time. Um, she was not afraid to live her life on her own terms or buck tradition. She was with her, her partner while he was still married to his ex-wife, and everybody was cool with it. They all were like, just... It was normal for them. Um, there were also rumors that she shared her partner with her stepsister as well. Whatever the case may be, they all had a certain arrangement that really seemed to work out well for them, and that's really all that mattered. When her partner eventually died, she became a single mama to her son, and she ended up supporting him with her writing. Seriously, she was a bad bitch, I swear. <laughs> So Mary's mom was a pretty rad feminist writer and philosopher back in her day. In a New York Times article that I read about Mary, called The Woman Who Created a Monster, I learned that a doctor's lack of aseptic technique during the delivery gave Mary's mom a nasty infection that ultimately killed her when Mary was just 10 days old. Her father was a renowned political philosopher who raised Mary to be a free thinker and to adhere to his anarchist political beliefs. In 1814, when Mary was just the ripe old age of 14, she started a romantic relationship with one of her father's political followers. Percy Blythe Shelley was a 22-year-old radical poet who had been kicked out of Oxford University for essentially spamming his classmates with political pamphlets that shared his wacky beliefs. Um, Percy was already married at the time, but again, they didn't seem to let that minor inconvenience like her age and his marital status get in the way of their love. No way. They gave zero fucks. Like I mentioned before, it seems that there was some sort of an arrangement between the three of them, and it wouldn't be unreasonable to assume that perhaps they were all part of one big happy polycule. So Claire, Mary's sister... Percy and Mary were the OG Brat Pack. Local gossip hounds suspected that the group was a big bunch of free-loving hippies, and that was not exactly common behavior for the time. Um, the locals found their exotic ways so interesting that one bougie hotel actually provided a telescope for their guests to use to spy on the gang at their leisure. So Frankenstein or the modern Prometheus, was published anonymously on January 1st of 1818. Fun fact, Frankenstein's monster and I share a birthday. <laughs> 
To understand this whole Frankenstein phenomena, it is very important to understand the obsession in the scientific community at the time with electricity. Mary Shelley was constantly surrounded by some of the biggest thinkers of her time. Her husband and father were very well-educated men who both enjoyed picking apart the current topics of the day with all of the experts that they had access to. One such topic was the newly discovered galvanism. Does anybody know what galvanism is? Don't worry, I will tell you. Luigi Galvani was an Italian physician and biologist who was the first dude to discover that animal electricity existed. He was a pioneer in the field of bioelectromagnetics, which is the study of how electromagnetic fields interact with living cells. I know that sounds really boring, but it's actually kind of cool. What they're saying is that there's the potential to perhaps reanimate dead tissue with electricity. And they were like, mind's blown. We've never heard of this before. Um, so in the novel, our friend Victor Frankenstein pulls a Unabomber and becomes a recluse who devoted himself to science. Victor has a one-track science mind and has distanced himself from all of society. His self-imposed isolation would wear very thin on him, and he eventually decided to create his own friend instead of just going out and meeting someone. I don't know. Seems like it might be easier to go to the bar. So, sort of like Dahmer, he decides to build a creature out of dead bodies with no regard to how the creature might feel about being cobbled together out of decomposing bits and pieces. When the creature comes to life, he has an oh shit moment, and he runs the fuck away, gets sick, and takes him forever and a day to recover. So he literally like makes this monster and then pieces the fuck out. Seems responsible, right? Don't, don't get a pet if you can't take care of the pet. <laughs> So when he recovers, Victor learns his brother has been murdered, and with no real reason, he kind of suspects the creature that he created. And I'm like, this dude's kind of an asshole, I'm not gonna lie. He didn't even give this monster a name. He's just like, fuck you, you're anonymous. Yep, the monster. The, the monster. Yep. It's rude. It's so rude. So, um, he meets the creature on a glacier, and the creature tells him about how he had to learn on his own how to speak and how to read, no thanks to Dr. Asshole. And he convinces Victor to build him a mate because he's living a lonely life that he did not ask to live. So Victor builds him a friend, and then he has a major case of builder's remorse and destroys her in a fit of disgust. So creature numeral uno swears to bestow his revenge on Victor's wedding night. Uh Oh, it's never good. So Victor goes ahead and he marries his best gal, Elizabeth, and naturally the creature kills her. Victor feels some kind of way about this and swears to avenge his beloved bride. The pursuit is on and it takes them all the way to the Arctic. Spoiler alert, Victor ends up dying. The creature takes off to be lost in the darkness and distance. This epic story struck a chord with readers and quickly became a part of history. It has inspired countless film adaptations, games, parodies, music, radio programs, theater productions, com comics, novels, and even medical 
innovations and some podcasts. Mm-hmm. A few podcasts. I feel like once you're down to like, in, like you have an eponymous name, like you are just known by that one name. You made it, right? It's like Prince, right? Share. Yeah. Something that's very interesting that I did not realize until I started down this rabbit hole is that Frankenstein actually contributed some pretty rad medical advancements. Um, this little storybook actually introduced some pretty revolutionary ideas for the time. The first thing that comes to mind for me would be organ transplantation. Um, when this book was written, that just didn't happen. They didn't understand anything about the mechanisms and it had never been done. So you're reading this book and you're like, it might as well be like, oh, he swallowed a pill and grew wings and flew around the earth twice. Like that's how it's so crazy far from reality. Yeah, right? that's how that wild this was. So um, today we are all pretty familiar with this concept. Um, but yeah, Shelley's speculations about reanimation definitely helped to um, normalize the idea that it might be possible to do such things. Do you want to hear something really cool before I, I'm done? Of course. So in his memoir, Earl Bakken describes how in 1932, his eight-year-old self watched the movie Frankenstein for the first time. He was so captivated that it sparked for him a lifelong interest in combining electricity and medicine. This man grew up to found a little company called Medtronic. Why do we care about this? Does anyone know? They were the first company to develop a transitory cardiac pacemaker. They also have a dope museum of electricity in life sciences that is currently located in Minnesota. So if you know someone who has a pacemaker, you can kind of, in a roundabout way, thank Frankenstein and Mary Shelley for saving their lives because they kind of introduced this idea into pop culture and it just grew and grew. All right, so we are keeping with our theme of, uh, well, Universal Monsters. So for mine, I chose to cover Bela Lugosi, um, who's our screen ideal of a vampire, right? He's representative, representative of this huge cultural idea. It's pretty synonymous. Yes. So that's the part that we're all familiar with, rather than Bella as a human and the way his life kind of unfolded. <laughs> it makes a great story. Though. It is. I, the, I really, I really want you guys to understand how shocking this was to me to read <laughs> and and go and research this because it's just not talked about. So let's get started. Bela Lugosi was born October 20th, 1880 as Bela Ferenc Deško Blasko in Lugos, Hungary. His actual birthplace was about 50 miles from the Transylvanian border and Poneri Castle in the Carpathian Mountains, which was home of Vlad the Impaler. Hell yeah, it was. <laughs> Bela's father, Istvan Blasko, was a banker and his mother was a Serbian immigrant named Paula. Like any good Roman Catholic family, they had an um, productive marriage. <laughs> uh, Bella was the youngest of four children and born in very rapid succession. And according to Bella himself, he was very unruly as a boy and seemed to be quite a handful for his family. Others described him as a kind but rambunctious boy. Oh my gosh, he's holding. Yes, absolutely. 
Um, he said that in his youth, he, had, he quickly learned a talent for adjusting his behavior based on the gender of the person he was with, explaining that with boys, I say, I was a brute. With girls, I was a lamb. He attended a local grammar school, and when the time came to move up to basically the Hungarian equivalent of middle school at 11, it did not go well. He absolutely hated how strict the rules and environment were at the Hungarian State Gymnasium and dropped out after attending for a year. After dropping out, he decided to strike out and seek his fortune on his own. So this is, I, I just kind of want to give you guys a mental picture here. This is a 12-year-old boy on the lam, traveling by foot through the Austro-Hungarian Empire completely on his own. He mostly relied on the kindness of strangers, as well as the odd job offered by um, people living in the towns that he traveled through. So through his journey, he eventually reached an itty-bitty mining town about 300 miles from his hometown, which was called Reseda. Once settled, Bela immediately began looking for work and was hired to work in a coal mine. So fun fact, the Hungarian child labor laws at the time excluded mining as a hazardous occupation, so this is perfectly legal for a prepubescent boy to work in coal mine. It's terrible. It was an essential industry. Listen, I can't even get my kids to clean their room. Okay. Let alone earn a living. During this time in Reseda, Bella became infatuated with the different touring theater groups that would stop through, and unsurprisingly, he was shortly bitten by the acting bug. The director allowed Bela to perform small roles, bit parts mostly. Um, and on the rare occasion that he was given a speaking role, he was harshly criticized by the actors for his lack of professionalism and stage presence. Reminder, this is a literal child. Mm. This is a 12-year-old boy. I don't know what they expected, but here we are. In 1897, Bela decided that he was going to move back home to continue his education where he left off. Unfortunately, he dropped out shortly thereafter and began working on the railroad instead. He was deeply unhappy as his acting dreams had been dashed by the actors he had hoped to learn from. His older sister, Vilma, knowing how talented her brother was, asked her husband to drop Bella's name to a friend who handled hiring for a theater company. Given this opportunity, Bella excelled. His lack of theater training didn't matter. After all, he was a natural talent. By the 1900s, he began theater school, specializing in Shakespearean works, and decided to adopt the last name of Lugosi to honor his Hungarian heritage. So for about 10 years, Bela Lugosi performed the male leading roles in Romeo and Juliet, Richard III, Hamlet, basically a whole smattering of Shakespearean plays. In 1913, he auditioned for the Hungarian National Theater in Budapest and nailed it. He was a leading man in the National Theater. And interesting, Interesting side note, um, Hungarian national theater actors are not required to complete military service as their performance is seen as like their service to the country. But Bela wasn't going for it. He voluntarily enlisted and um, fought in World War I against Russia. Wow. During his tour of duty, Bela sustained combat injuries requiring him to accept an honorable discharge and he returned to the national theater thereafter. So at this time in his career, Bela Lugosi chose to transition to silent film. He acted in many Hungarian films and actually started Hungary's first actors' union. Unfortunately, due to, the support, due to his support of the Hungarian Revolution, he became an enemy of the state after the revolution failed, and he was forced to flee to Vienna. 
He was cast in several German films and was actually quite successful in Germany, but wanted more. So this is the part where we're all familiar. Bella decides to immigrate to the US and we kind of know the rest. 1931 was Bella's first talking horror film, Dracula. This opened, made him a Universal Studios icon. That's the Bella we all know and love. Uh -huh. As with most celebrity lives, we very rarely get to know the whole story or even the more private aspects. So there's one aspect that not a whole lot of people seem to know about and that is the haunting of Bella Lugosi. This is the best part, you guys. <laughs> the man had a wild life. Um, <laughs> beyond his carefully crafted, haunting on-screen persona, Lugosi was quite familiar with otherworldly beings. He was himself haunted by a mysterious female phantasm with bright yellow eyes. It's always the bright yellow eyes that'll get you. <laughs> Owing to a 1932 J. Eugene Christman interview with Bella in Modern Screen Magazine, we have been provided with a firsthand account of his encounters with the yellow-eyed woman over the years. The first dates back to 1914 in a Croatian seaside town called Apatia. So while in Apatia, Bella met a woman named Hetty. He described her as an ageless actress with light brown hair, pale porcelain skin, and he was absolutely enamored with her. She had thin ruby lips and teeth that were just a little bit sharper than normal. Mm. Bella described gazing into Hetty's eyes as a shot of fire and ecstasy, which drew the two together into a passionate embrace. Mm. Flowery, right? I <laughs> love it. Um, hmm? Oh no, we always want participation. A little bit, please a bit. <laughs> so she had the kind of energy that could both strike fear into and ensnare the hearts of men. She was the object of desire for many, many married men locally who Get were at her, I know, right? Living the dream. Mm -hmm. They were at her every beck and call for the most part. At the time, Bella only had eyes for Hetty and vice versa, and their ill-fated romance would only last about three weeks, though. One afternoon, Bella left their shared flat to run some errands. When he returned in the evening, Hetty and all her belongings were gone. She vanished without a trace, leaving only a note. Rude. <laughs> in the note, she explained that the two lovers may never see each other again, but he would always belong to her. Hetty leaving quite honestly broke Bella for a while. He searched high and low for her, obsessed with finding his lost love. He couldn't eat, couldn't sleep. Bella actually described himself as having gone mad and crazy with the loss of his ethereal lady. We've all been there and he didn't have Ben and Jerry's to help him through or tender. Remember how I mentioned Bella's honorable discharge due to injury in World War I? So when Bella was recovering from his wounds in a military hospital in Budapest, he met his first wife, Ilona Sismik, just before he returned to theater full time. They got married in 1917, and he quickly learned that the marriage was not meant to be as Hetty chose to make an appearance. Right as he was about to take the stage for an evening performance, a woman suddenly appeared in the wings. It was Hetty. Shaken, Bella walked to his mark, as soon as the curtain opened, Bella completely forgot his lines and froze on stage. I mean, what a bad time for your ex to show up. Honestly, and like, this is super out of character because, I mean, the man's a consummate actor. He's classically trained, mm -hmm. uh, you know, I, I, this, was, this was very uh, striking and shocking for the staff. 
So according to Bella, when the curtain opened, a woman in the front row's eyes seemed to glow yellow. He was captivated. He gazed wordlessly into her eyes, suddenly came back to himself, and then finished his lines. Afterward, he rushed out to find her, thinking she would be in his dressing room waiting for him, but she wasn't. He set out to resume his search to find Hetty, which led to the end of his marriage to Ilona. Hetty had taken control of him again. He desperately searched for her, pining away, and he and Ilona officially divorced in 1920. Some toxic shit. Right? So still in this super deep depression over Hetty, Bella starts, starts wasting away. Uh, rumors start circulating in the village about a mysterious woman who is somehow causing many other young men to wither away and die within the village. And the elders figured it was some sort of curse that a woman placed on the town's young men. To protect him, Bela Lugosi's mother forced him to leave Hungary and not come back until he'd gotten Hetty completely out of his system. And of course, as he would do as his mom instructed, heading to America and founding a theater troupe composed mostly of other, just mostly um, other Hungarians or a few Germans. They toured different cities and by 1921, Bela Lugosi was married again. His second wife was also named Ilona. Ilona Montag. Weird. <laughs> so these two were happy together as well until Hetty returns. Fucking Hetty. She's going to keep popping up, man. She's an asshole. <laughs> Hetty arrived in Bela's dressing room during one of his shows, appearing seemingly out of nowhere. She spoke in a deep, rhythmic voice, almost hypnotic. She told Bella that even though he had come across the waters, he would not escape her powers. She told Bella to let the woman he married go and to not take a third wife. Bella was obviously upset, demanding to know exactly what this power was that Hetty had over him and what she was doing to him. Her response told him all he needed to know, confirming that he was dealing with some sort of supernatural entity. Hetty's response was, that I cannot tell you. I want to warn you, though, that there must be no third time. If there is, I shall strike harder. Someday, Bella, we shall be together as we should be, you and I. Hetty once again disappeared into the night, and Bella's marriage to the second Ilona ended. This is how you keep him on the hook, though. <laughs> yeah, keep him guessing, man. Terrorize them until they're too afraid to dump you. Oh, God. <laughs> so the second encounter with Hetty caused Bella to think about who and what he was actually dealing with. He grew up hearing about vampires from his nanny and others in his village. He even saw some of their purported victims. As an adult, he began noticing the mysterious wasting illnesses disproportionately affecting the young men and women in his hometown. These previously healthy people were dying with no cause. He was a skeptic and kind of shook off the idea of Hetty being you know, anything other than human, but that skepticism would not last long. While touring with the stage production of Dracula in 1927, he met a lovely and wealthy young widow named Beatrice Weeks. Ooh, get that. They became very close friends and frequently corresponded during the tour. The following July, the production came to San Francisco for an extended engagement, and within the first 10 days, Bella had married and separated from Beatrice because of another visit from Hetty. According to Bella, about two days after wedding Beatrice, the curtain rose on their first San Francisco Dracula performance, and he locked onto those familiar <laughs> Hetty was there front row center, and the moment he saw her, he knew that she had been truthful in their last encounter. His third marriage was also doomed. 
Lugosi came home that night absolutely crushed, having to tell Beatrice that their marriage was over. He explained his fear of Hetty and what he thought she would do to Beatrice, who did not believe him, even a little. Bella? She, oh, sorry, I was just going to comment about how she has never had to deal with a petty Hetty before. Honestly. So she just doesn't understand. Yes. So this one kind of struck me because <laughs> Beatrice was his first non-Hungarian wife, which he mentions. He said of the conversation, my first two wives had been Hungarian, and we are a mystic people, a psychic race who feel. They at least had understood, if only that it was something I could not explain. Beatrice could not. Bela Lugosi's fear of Hetty's powers weighed heavy on his heart. He knew something was coming, but not exactly what. Three months after the opening of Dracula in 1931, Beatrice Weeks Lugosi was dead. She was 34 years old. That is excessive, Hetty. <laughs> she warned him, though. Third time, she's going to strike harder. Listen to you, victim blaming. I know, right? Uh, in 1933, Bela Lugosi married a fourth time to Lillian Arch, who was 31 years his junior. Bella was extremely worried about someone or something breaking into their home and made several security updates to the property. His goal was that the home should be, quote, safe against an invasion of any kind. Their marriage lasted 20 years. They divorced in 1953. Wow. Hetty never appeared in physical form again. And, of course, Bella married his fifth wife, Hope Leninger, in 1955. <laughs> Hope was I'm the saying. last of Bella Lugosi's wives. I would hope so. I mean, look at his track record, right? Listen, I was a one-and-done kind of chick. Like This is true. Divorced once. I'm not doing that again. We'll find a new adventure. <laughs> so, Hope was the last of his wives as he passed away in his sleep on August 16, 1956. Now, we all know that Bella's on-screen persona overshadowed the man that he truly was. Now, whether the tale of Hetty and her mysterious powers were created for our benefit or not, we may never know. I will leave you with this. There have been people who corroborated Lugosi's tale of Hetty and her mesmerizing gaze. One of the stagehands Bella worked with on the Dracula stage tour mentioned remembering the star's strange behavior during one of their evening performances. He mentioned to a reporter that Lugosi acted as if he'd seen a ghost and completely froze on stage. A second version of the tale comes from L.P. Walter, who was one of El Lugosi's maternal great uncles. He was writing to a friend when he mentioned that Lugosi's career as a stage actor was beginning to take off. He was just, it was like a catch-up letter. He was just expressing how proud he was. You know, this is what's going on in the fam. So Walter mentioned that Bella was being haunted by a mysterious cat woman. <laughs> <laughs> According to Walter, uh, she would seem to just appear in the front row whenever Bella was performing and gazed at him with her glittering green eyes. According to Walter, Bella said that Hetty left him with these final words. You and I are two of a kind, Bella, and in the end, you must join me. I kind of want to think that he did, just a little. Maybe they're out there together terrorizing people. I can dig it. I like it. So yes, that was The Haunting of Bella Lugosi. Do you think if we say Bella and Hetty five times in the mirror that they will appear? Madam, what do we talk about melanin content? 
I know, but I'm white, we so I want that. to try that. We I want don't to try do that. that. We're doing that. No, we are not. I'm you com- can do yeah, your I'm house. coming to your house. No, ma'am. Yeah. No, ma'am. I know where you live. <laughs> <laughs> oh, man. You guys didn't get any candies. Come, come take candy. some candy. I don't want to take this home. Do you have any questions about our adventure that we just went on? Anybody? Questions, comments, concerns? Uh, yes. So was she always that's what it sounds like. She, I, it wasn't entirely clear she was a ghoul of some kind. So she was never an actual person. Not that we've been able to find. I this think she was her. like one of those siren ghouls. Like so, in Arabic culture, from what I've learned, they they believe in ghouls. Oh yeah, yeah. Um, who a lot of times they don't. I don't think ghouls necessarily have a specific gender, but they can shape shift. And they often prefer to make themselves very beautiful and sexual in appearance to lure unsuspecting menfolk away so that they can devour their flesh and stuff. They're very similar, um, different names in different cultures, but similar kind of methodology. Yeah. You know, they will do what they can to like. I thought Yeah. She's talking about the actual pattern of. The, the actual pattern of luring someone in. Like, it's like kind of like how a like siren like, does. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yep. So, being something that they desire right, right. or singing an alluring little ditty. Yeah. That was my take on it anyway. Yeah. But I'm no expert. That tracks. Well, thanks for hanging with us, guys. Yeah. This was super cool. Yeah, and then we get, to, we get to go drive two and a half hours back home. <laughs> Good time. This was so fun. Please take a sticker and a card. (laughs)